Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. It's 1 Peter 1, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, as always, for reading that passage for us this morning. I love it when you read. You take us into the text. We're continuing on in this series that we started last week on 1 Peter, which we really started on Easter Sunday when we, when we did an overview of the life of Simon Peter, the author of this letter. And uh, we continue in, in, in this now uh, by way of talking about suffering, which is a theme that's going to come up a lot in the sermon series because it's one of the reasons he's writing this letter is there's a lot of suffering happening. There's a lot of persecution uh, that these believers are facing. And so it's a theme that runs throughout. And so we're going to continue on in that today. I, I, I mentioned last week that uh, I have a birthday coming up where I turn 50. And um, somebody asked me today, are you doing better with that? And the answer is No. <laughs> Not even close. Uh, but I, I mark time uh, by my 40th birthday in a lot of ways because my 40th birthday, uh, I spent my 40th birthday in, in a hospital bed. And it was, about, it was about 10 years and one month ago today, right, right around this time, where 
uh, I had I had gotten out of the hospital uh, and been diagnosed with this bacterial infection inside of my heart. And I was sitting, I remember I was sitting at a table on the patio of the Starbucks near Vanderbilt, that one that's right there on 21st. And I was by myself. And the reason that I was there is that I had come to do something very important. And what I had come to do was I had come to write five letters. And the reason I was there to write five letters was because I had fallen gravely ill. I had learned about this infection that was inside of my heart, that it had done this damage, and that I was now going to have to have open-heart surgery to either fix or repair my mitral valve. And in the process of this, one of the instructions that we were given was to put our house in order. And so I wrote these letters, one to my wife and four to each of, one for each of my children. And I wrote them in case the worst arrived. And that season was, for me, a season of education about the intersection of suffering and faith. Spoiler alert, I pulled through. <laughs> In this world, we suffer. All of us suffer. It's part of the human experience. If I went around this room and said, I'd like 10 people to come up here at random and just tell stories about your own suffering, by the time we got just a few in, we'd all be in tears because of the sorrow that even a small cross-section of this room can bear witness to. We would be sad for each other. We'd be sad for ourselves. We would, we would feel what C.S. Lewis said so well when he said, it seems to me that one can hardly say anything either good enough or bad enough about life. The Apostle Peter when he wrote this epistle, he was writing it to people who were suffering. And they were suffering much. They were persecuted for their faith. They were trying to discern how to move forward. And you can know, because it would be this way anywhere, that when the persecution is real and you're seeing the persecution coming and, and affecting people that you know, that surely the idea of abandoning the faith crossed the minds of many as they just ask the simple question, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Are the goodness of God and suffering compatible with one another? As a pastor, one of the things that I do is I sit with people in their suffering. I've done it this week. It's a regular part of the rhythm of what I do. And as a person who has once sat in a coffee shop writing letters to my own family in case I died, and also as somebody who has sat with many of you 
in your own suffering, here's what rises up in me. What rises up in me is nothing in me wants to shrink from the topic of the suffering and the goodness of God. Nothing in me wants to pull back from that because there's hope. There's hope in the conversation about suffering and the goodness of God. And so I want to lean into that because it's a worthy discussion. And I want to give you my thesis and then unpack it. Let me state it in the negative first. I don't believe that the reality of suffering discredits the idea of a good God. Positively, I would say it this way. I believe that the reality of suffering proves there's a loving God. You may say, how? If suffering is a reality for us all, which it is, nobody gets out clean, right? If suffering is a reality for us all, then every one of us should be asking at least two fundamental questions. Question one, why does this happen? What's that about? Second question, what, if anything, is being done about it? Why does this happen? What is being done about it? The gospel of Jesus Christ answers these two questions with an unshrinking, resolute clarity that you will not find anywhere else. And so... These are the two questions that I want us to unpack. Why does suffering happen and what, if anything, is being done about it? Question one, why does suffering happen? Peter begins this letter by telling these suffering Christians, you have cause to rejoice. You have cause to rejoice. Why? He says, because you've been born again into a living You've caused to rejoice because the suffering is real, but you have been born a second time into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we can use this term, it's such a Christian term, born again, that we can use it almost euphemistically like it's just a, a, a phrase to use to, to identify somebody as a Christian. But think about what's being said. What's being said is you were born once, and then some life happened. And then, while you were still here, you were born a second time and a, into a new life. New things are true about you now that weren't the case when you were just born that first time. You've been born again. And the way Peter describes it is you've been born again into this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's living. In other words, Their hope in the face of present suffering is that Jesus now has defeated death itself. He's defeated the power of death, the last enemy. This is your hope, is that death doesn't get the final word. Everything else that we deal with in life, every other trial, every other suffering that we face, has to face the same power as the power that defeated the grave. Hope. When we think about hope, hope doesn't even exist without suffering. There's no need for hope if there's no suffering. Hope is something that we, it's longing for something that we don't yet have. It's believing that something is coming that we we have not yet obtained. And so if you're a person who believes in the value of hope, then you've already accepted 
the reality of suffering. And what that hope is, is it's a protest. Hope is a protest that the suffering that you experience in this life will one day cease. The Christian hope is attached to an internal an eternal inheritance. Peter talks about this. He says we have this internal eternal sorry, keep saying internal. Eternal inheritance that Peter says is is kept for us by the one who also keeps us. And one day this inheritance will be ours forever, never to be lost. Every sad thing come untrue. No more brokenness, no more sin, no more vocational crisis, no more, no more relational brokenness, none of that. But right now we live in a world that's broken and we experience that brokenness. But Christianity has an answer for where all the brokenness is coming from. And it's humanity's broken relationship with our maker. That we as a people have rejected our creator's right to be our God and instead we've made other gods for ourselves and we've worshipped them and we've bowed down to them. And in our commitment to live that way, we have lived lives where the peace that we were meant to know, the peace that we were meant to have with our creator has been frustrated. It's been frustrated. You feel that? You ever feel that with the brokenness in this world? Just it's frustrating. I feel thwarted. I feel frustrated. And our attempts to find satisfaction apart from God, they just fail. This world is broken. We are broken. And that frustration It's the bad news of the gospel, right? It's that something here is profoundly amiss. Something here is broken. But let me ask you this. What's of greater comfort? Is it of greater comfort to say the world is broken, but nobody knows why? So we just, you know, try to put on a strong face. Or is it more comforting to say the world is broken and actually here's why? We know why. Another way of saying it is, is this suffering that we experience, is it in vain or is it not in vain? Not knowing why the world is broken doesn't make it any less broken. It's still broken. But saying there's no reason for the brokenness leads to a greater despair than understanding why the world is broken. Let me illustrate that. When our oldest son, who's now 23, he's our first kid, when he was about five or, or the age you get a loose tooth, he got a loose tooth. And he came to us with this serious look on his face. Mom, Dad, look. He put his finger on this wobbly tooth of his. And this was all brand new for him. And we'd never done this before as parents. And so to ease his distress, we did what parents do. And that's we got really excited for him. Hey! This is great. And we said, hey, when that thing falls out, uh, you can put it under your pillow and in the morning there's going to be a surprise. Most of you have not met my son. Chris is his name. He's 23. He's in the army. He's at Fort Campbell. But if you know him, this is not surprising. And that's that when we got excited about his tooth being loose and falling out and celebrating that, he just kind of looked at us. Like, 
you're not answering the question I'm asking. I didn't ask that question. I asked a different question. Because he didn't want to know, he really didn't want to know what would happen to his tooth after it fell out. What he really wanted to know is, why am I falling apart? And what is the extent of the falling apart that's happening in me right now? He's wanting to know, this world seems to be turning back on me. And I want to understand, it's betraying me. And so what is the extent of the suffering? Is my nose going to fall off too? Am I going to lose an arm? What's happening here? And so this future reward didn't really help him. It didn't help him grasp the reason for his present suffering. And something in him just needed to know, how does this work? And so I decided that I would just completely reverse my tactic. And I would just give him the truth in the most graphic way that I possibly could. You want to know what's happening to you? I'm going to tell you what's happening to you, son. Listen, here's the deal. This tooth that's wobbly of yours, it's because it's a baby tooth. And you're a big boy. And you have man teeth. And they're there inside your bones. If we took an x-ray of your face, you would see them kind of up there. You know what they're doing? They're pushing. They're pushing your baby teeth out, out of your head. And I have nothing but man teeth. And they don't budge. You can just feel them. Get in. You want to feel them? See, them, see if they're loose? And he pulled on one of them. He's like, it doesn't move. And I said, okay. So what I'm trying to tell you is, this is your first loose tooth. But son, every tooth in your head right now is eventually just going to get pushed out by these big teeth. It's going to get a little loose. The one you've got right now, it's going to start to get sore. It's going to bleed. It's bleeding now, actually. And you're going to suffer. And actually, when this one falls out, it's going to bleed even more because there's just going to be a hole where your tooth used to be. There's a big person tooth that's behind it. But you may not see it for a week or two, and you're just going to have this bloody hole in your mouth. But if you want, I could pull that loose tooth for you right now. He declined. (laughs) But my explanation calmed him. I watched it. I watched him kind of look at me with fear in his eye, but then kind of a, uh, this is helpful. And the reason he was feeling that way is because he wasn't really worried about what was happening to his tooth. He was worried about what was happening to him. And in this little t trauma that he's experiencing, all we offered him at first is, well, son, the good news is teeth turned into money. (laughs) He was like, I don't need that right now. What I need to know is what is happening to me? Is this suffering happening for a reason or or is, is it all just in vain? And that's what Christianity is like. Christianity has an answer for the suffering, has an explanation for it. Because of sin, the world is broken. We are broken. That's why we suffer. And the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is behind that suffering, pushing it out. So, why do we suffer? We suffer because the world is broken and we are broken. Question two, well, what is being done about the suffering, if anything? If suffering 
feels or seems wrong to you, if it seems wrong to you, that means that you have attached meaning to it. Shouldn't your response to suffering, if it feels wrong to you, shouldn't that involve some kind of a protest, some kind of a longing to see it end? Christianity answers the question, what is being done about suffering? In a few ways, I'm going to name two of them. The first, what is being done about our suffering? Our suffering is being used for good right now. That's the first one. And the second response to what is being done about our suffering is that one day it's going to cease forever. Forever. It'll be gone. And so Peter talks about that first one. It's being used for good right now. And he talks about it in kind of two positive outcomes. That your suffering is being used for personal refinement and it's being used for an outward witness to the faithfulness of Jesus. Personal refinement. Peter says it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fire. It's a testing Suffering doesn't simply determine if genuine faith is present. What it does is it's a way that God shapes us into who we're meant to be. God uses the suffering to shape our faith. It doesn't just reveal if it's there or not, it shapes it. And we know this, right? If we look at the times in our lives when we've grown the most, most of us would have to say it was when the world just sort of fell apart around us. God wasn't who we thought he was. People weren't who we thought they were. This, the way this world works wasn't. And, and, and we were upside down and confused and so it, it's such, in such a fog. And yet the Lord used that season of trial to change me. And so Peter's telling these believers who are facing persecution, don't waste it. Don't waste your suffering because it shapes you. Whatever you're facing, it's wise to ask the Lord. Okay, Lord, in this season of suffering where I, I can't see what it is that you're doing and I can't even necessarily see you in it, lead me out of this suffering transformed. Change me here. Whether it's in big ways or small ways, don't let this season of suffering be wasted, but transform me, change me. Personal refinement is a part of suffering, the shaping of the soul. And then there's this outward witness that's a part of it too. Our trials don't only shape us, but in ways we may never see, they shape other people too. Peter says it this way, he says, this is my paraphrase, he says, look, your, your trials are, are on account of your love for Jesus. When you stand up under the testing of your faith, you testify that his love is stronger than your weakness. In this you bring honor and praise to his name. In our trials, we bear witness to our hope in Christ. How? Verse 8 and 9, he talks about it. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What he's saying is this. As we suffer, we love Jesus and we rejoice in him and we see the fulfillment of the salvation to which we were first called in Christ. And all of this, while we've never seen Christ in person, it's a demonstration of our faith. And this kind of faith is a powerful witness. And I'm sure you've seen it before. I'm sure you've seen a believer in Jesus Christ discover a terminal illness 
And I'm sure you've seen them walk to the end of their days and have wondered at the mystery of their peace in the midst of your turmoil over what was happening to them. And if you haven't had that experience, walk with the Lord long enough, you will. You'll see it. There's this outward witness. The other thing that's being done about suffering is this. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, suffering is one day just going to end. It won't, it won't happen anymore. The old order of things will pass away. Behold, he will make all things new. A new creation that's coming that will be unmarred. Everything will be perfect. Sometimes I think about that in terms of relationships. And it's just a, a, a mysterious wonder for me to think of what it would be like for every relationship that I have to be perfect forever. And for every relationship that anybody has with me to be perfect, you get the best of me, a sanctified version of me, a glorified version of me. I love thinking about that. And I quickly run out of runway and, and don't really know how to think about it anymore. And yet, it's something that's coming because one day all of the brokenness will, will end. And the reason will be because Jesus didn't just empathize with our suffering and say, you've suffered, I've suffered. I know what that's like. He actually entered into our suffering and he took it upon himself. And he did this, Peter reminds us, because he loves us. Of this we can be sure. In a world where everyone suffers, only Christianity offers this concrete reason to believe that it will one day end. And that concrete reason to believe that all suffering will one day end is because Jesus rose from the grave. What does that have to do with anything? The wage of sin is death. And Jesus defeated that. He defeated the wage of our sin. And now he is our living hope, seated at the right hand of God the Father. All suffering will one day cease. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers us this consolation in our present suffering, that through the incarnation and the cross, we see that Jesus fully entered into our suffering, taking it upon himself. It means he felt it. It means he knew it. It means he still knows it because he's alive. And what the gospel offers us is hope for the future. Because Jesus has defeated the power of death itself. And he gives us life in his name. And so we have the assurance that we are bound for an eternity that is free from suffering. It is so hard to imagine. And it is nonetheless absolutely true. And so my prayer is that the graphic truth of the gospel would bring the kind of comfort that can only be called, what Peter calls it here, inexpressible joy. Like my son's baby teeth, the world is falling apart. But there is a force behind it that is pushing out the decay. It's pushing out the temporary. The temporary brokenness is going to be forced out by a coming permanent glory. 
And when it does, that will be all we know forever. Believe me when I tell you that that truth about the coming glory on the other side of the grave here, that it was in those letters. It was in those letters to my wife and my kids. That truth is in there. Christ has defeated the power of death itself. And because he has, what else shall we fear? Let me pray. Lord, when I look into the faces of people in this room, for many I know things they're suffering with because of the role that you've given me as a pastor in this community. But I'm also aware that I know a fraction of what there is to know about the suffering and the pain and the brokenness that we carry, the frustration, <laughs> the frustration. Lord, it's hard to be frustrated, and yet it's, all, it's unavoidable, it seems, in a world where it's just at every turn. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our times of frustration and suffering and weakness, pain, to look to you, to understand that you're working even now in our brokenness and our suffering by refining us personally and by using our lives as a witness to others, but also that you have addressed it uh, and that there will come a day when there will be no more suffering or pain. You will make all things new. And so, Lord, help us to live now in a very present way with this future glory in view. We're grateful for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.